Okay, well, good morning. We're continuing in our uh, series. I do not think that verse means what you think it means. Uh, but first, I, d- I really do want to give it up for the folks who um, were uh, involved with making the VBS happen, especially Ann Jones, who naturally is not here. Um, it really, really was impressive to see the way everybody was able to come together and uh, the way that, uh, that the churches uh, got along. Uh, so I was really encouraged by that. Um, our, our text this morning is from uh, 2 Corinthians. And uh, if, if, you, um, if you are really interested in this, uh, we did a series on 2 Corinthians back in the fall of 2008. Uh, and we do have... Thank you, sir. Thank you. We do have the, um, the CD in the archives if you want to listen to it, but uh, I, I think there are, there are two ways that this text is often uh, misinterpreted. I'll say what they are, but let me first read it. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Paul says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So the two things uh, that this is often understood to mean, which I don't think it means, are first, that you're not supposed to date unbelievers. Um, Again, I'll I'll refer you to the full sermon if you want to hear about that, but... uh, for one thing, there wasn't a whole lot of dating going on back when Paul was writing this. Uh, that actually is probably a good application of this, but I don't think that's the main thing that Paul is saying here. The second, uh, what I would say, misapplication of this uh, is in the sense of, of uh, supporting an idea known as second-degree separation. Is anybody familiar with second-degree separation? I didn't think so, so let me help us out here. That's six. Kevin Bacon is sixth degree. We're away, that's way advanced stuff. Okay, so there are basically uh, the, the first degree of separation. This is, we're getting really technical here. You, you're not going to have to, like, remember. There won't be a quiz, but it'll, I think, make sense and be useful. Uh, is holiness. That's a sense of being separate from the world. Right? This is not a terribly controversial doctrine. This is pretty basic stuff. Um, so, for example, you find in, in 1 Peter in chapter 1, he writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, this idea of holiness, right? The word, the word holy uh, sometimes uh, can be translated as be sanctified. Um, 
ha- in, it involves with it the idea of being set apart, right? So the, the holy uh, articles that were used in worship in the temple were set apart from common use, and they were be- to be used uh, for the purpose of worship. There is a sense of being set apart uh, that comes with this holiness thing. And so the, the, uh, the first degree of separation that all of us are called to, again, this is not in any way controversial, has to do with being separate somehow, understanding ourselves to be separate from, be called out of the world that we're living in, right? Not that, not that we're, we're supposed to be, um, I mean, Jesus says, I'm not calling them, call, asking you, Father, to call them out of the world, but I want them to live for you as they're in it. So that's the first degree of separation. Now, the second degree of separation basically has to do with, um, how shall I put this? Uh, Arrogance? No, that's not it. Um, Being a jerk? No. Uh, How about, I'll call it being exclusivism. Exclusive is, oh, that's terrible. (laughs) Exclusivism. That's okay, don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> the second degree separation basically means separating yourselves people that, from people that you don't think are doing number one well enough, especially from other churches that you do not think are doing number one well enough. So if you think that another church has sold out to worldliness by any particular one of its practices or by its failure to practice one of the things that you think to be important, That is known as second-degree separation. A good example of that would be on the cover of your bulletin. Evidently, uh, the gentleman was not aware that that only the proper holy people have the uh, spikes on their helmets. So that's second-degree separation. Now, uh, very briefly, why I don't think this passage is about second-degree separation uh, is uh, that uh, this word unbelievers, apistoi in Greek, uh, is never anywhere in the New Testament used to refer to people who are heretical, to people who are Christians but are worldly, to people who are Christians but are not living sufficiently holy lives. You think of all of the problems that were going on in Corinth that we find referred to in the first and second letters to the Corinthians. All the problems that are going on, Paul never refers to these people who are teaching strange doctrines, to people who are misbehaving uh, to people who are not sufficiently holy, he never refers to them as unbelievers, right? So this word unbelievers seems to refer to people who are not at all uh, in, in the body of Christ. Uh, the, the second reason is if you look at these, uh, the, the Old Testament passages that Paul references, so uh, I will be their God and they will be my people, that comes out of Leviticus. The scenario there is that God's people are being taken out of Egypt and brought into the land. They're being taken out of the world, so to speak, taken out of a place that was sort of dominated by this pagan paradigm, and they're being brought into the land where they're going to live as God's people in the land he's giving them. You look at the passage in Isaiah 52. Therefore, come ye out from them and be separate, uh, says the Lord. There, uh, again, what, what Isaiah is, is referring to is the return of the exiles from Babylon. Specifically, he's there addressing the people who uh, were the Levites, who performed service in the temple. And he's talking about them leaving this place uh, that was, again, full of, of all kinds of idolatry and pagan worship, 
being rescued out of there and then brought in back to Jerusalem, to the city of, of Zion, the city of the living God, where God's going to restore his people to, and then they're going to be able once again to have proper worship in the sanctified temple using the sanctified implements, being sanctified people, right? So again, that doesn't seem to, ha- seem to have to do with uh, purifying yourself from people that are supposed to be in your tribe but aren't sufficiently pure. It has to do with being rescued out of a place where you are, are not among your people and you're being uh, taken out of there and brought to this. So probably what Paul is talking about here. Uh, it, it refers to people who were in Corinth who had not sufficiently removed themselves from the habits, the practices, perhaps the worship that was characteristic of their old life before they met Christ. In Corinth, uh, in particular, you had uh, uh, temple prostitution. Uh, you had people who were um, in, involved in the worship of that when they were pagans, which is totally normal. That's what you would do if you were a pagan Corinthian. Um, and, and Paul is, is saying to the folks who are in the church in Corinth, that was your old way of life. You need to come out from that and live as you're supposed to now. Um, in, in, the, uh, in the first Corinthian uh, letter, you, you find all kinds of references to things that folks used to do that they ought not to be doing anymore. And uh, uh, I think that is what Paul is talking about here. Now, here's why I think this... Uh, this is important. Here's why I think it's important for us to recognize. Now, I think, you know, recognizing that this isn't about dating non-believers, even though that's a good application, kind of where that cashes out is fairly neutral. But, but understanding this not to be about second-degree separation, well, it makes me think of yogurt. Uh, James, will you and Rob please help us out? Um, so the, uh, as you know, uh, the latest, latest craze is Greek yogurt, uh, and the folks at uh, Dannon have uh, come to, to understand. I think we have, we have spoons and napkins for the people too, don't we? Good. Uh, the folks at Dannon have come to understand that uh, a good way to market it is by putting a Greek word on the package. So the folks at, at Dannon have chosen to label this stuff oikos. What's that? What'd you say? Oive, no, not oive. Oikos. Now, does anybody know what the word oikos means? The word oikos does not mean yogurt. No. Thank you. Trying again. The word oikos. Separated does not mean separated. Does not mean separate. No. What's that? The word oikos is a good marketing strategy, it appears, but it does not mean good marketing strategy. Oikos means house. Oikos means house. What's that? Which is what's from outside the house? The yogurt. I mean, I guess you could make the yogurt at home. Oikos means house. The word oikos means house. Now, the word oikos is where we get the word, and here's where this gets important, ecumenism. Adjective being ecumenical, right? Ecumenism comes from oikos. So you see where I'm going here, you say. Well, let's see. See, the word ecumenism has to do 
with the degree to which we understand and recognize and live out the reality of the church, Big C Church, as the household of God. And you will not be surprised to know that there is ample uh, biblical reason to do this. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll let you, you don't, don't worry about flipping around, enjoy your yogurt while I read you some verses. Here in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says, consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens. Here he's talking to Gentiles who would have been outside uh, but now have been brought in. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So here the church is being described as a temple, as the temple of the living God uh, in which God lives by his spirit. Go ahead and flip ahead. To, well, I'll flip ahead while you eat. First Timothy chapter 3. This is after all the controversial stuff. Paul says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So Paul alludes to this idea of the church as uh, the temple of God or the household of God. In Hebrews, we get this lovely passage, and it reminds me how much we enjoyed Hebrews when we took a very brief time to go through it. At least I did. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 6, Paul says, I'm sorry, chapter 3 of Hebrews. He says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. And here there's this image of, of Israel, the people of God being God's house or household. Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And I'll just give you one more. We'll circle back around to 1 Peter. What we find in chapter 2 of 1 Peter He says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's the place where Peter says, not only are you being built into uh, a, a, a spiritual house, into a holy house, you're also being made a holy priesthood, right? So you're doing ministry uh, in that house. And here, again, Peter is addressing the church. So the church is the oikos of God. It's the house of God, right? So we're all in the house. Now, ecumenism has to do with the, uh, again, understanding the, the, the nature of the church, the big C, capital C, church as God's household, understanding that, respecting that, living into that. What's tragic and what really bothers me 
And here I'm going to be very, uh, I'm not going to get as salty as I could, but it really, really bothers me that in the last century what we have seen uh, is some, uh, basically is, is the hijacking of this word and this idea. Um, it, it's been hijacked by different folks in different directions. One way that it's been hijacked is basically uh, to serve a, uh, a political purpose. So the Central Maryland Ecumenical Council is basically a left-wing pressure group. If you look on their website, what they're about has to do with specific policies that uh, are supported by some people and not others, and the people who, who support them say that they're supported because of their understanding of the gospel and what Jesus calls us to. That's fine, uh, but by calling this the Central Maryland Ecumenical Council, what they effectively say, and, and if you read uh, the text of, of what they say, it really does imply that is, if, if you are in the household of God, you will agree with my politics, and you will agree with the things that I think are necessary in terms of, of uh, uh, civic, uh, both national and local politics, which can be alienating for those of us who love Jesus and think different policy prescriptions would be good. But, but it also really, really bothers me because it, I think it undermines the unity of the body of Christ by essentially saying that there is no place for certain wings of the house. They should be locked off. Nobody should be living in that wing of the house. It should only be in my wing of the house that, uh, that you count as really being in the house. Another way that ec the ecumenical movement, so to speak, has been hijacked is it's been hijacked by people who want to boil down the Christian faith to the lowest common denominator. In fact, some people want to include other faiths in there while, you're at it, while they're at it. Uh, by, by denying the things that are distinctive about the Christian faith and by trying to paper over or render unimportant those things that makes different parts of the family what they are. Uh, and so what that has done as a practical matter is it's said to people who have firm convictions about things like whether you ought to baptize babies or, or not, uh, have firm convictions about whether a priest needs to be male or not, uh, by saying to people, no, none of that is really important. What's really important is what we say is important, and that ends up being a pretty small list. Um, and so uh, what you need to do is you need to work toward getting rid of all the things that make you unique and make you yourself, and we all need to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Um, the problem with that is not just that Kumbaya, Kumbaya is really annoying, um, and I'm not into hand-holding. Some of you guys, yeah. Um, we're all different. Uh, but, but what it's done, again, it's, it's basically alienated those parts of the oikos, of the house, that feel that the, their convictions about how they do what they do are important and are willing to respect others and their convictions, but don't want it all to get just boiled down. And also, frankly, don't want it to be boiled down and then be run by the people who want to do the boiling down. Um, and then there's also an, another approach to ecumenism, and I don't want to get too far into this, but which, which pushes towards structural ecumenism, which says that the most important thing that we can do is to make sure that we are all uh, uh, no longer divided structurally, that we are all under the same shepherd, i.e. the Pope. Um, I mean, that basically is ultimately the Roman Catholic understanding of ecumenism is everybody being Catholic, which, you know, it's consistent with, the, with their theology, um, but also kind of obnoxious to me. Um, so, so these are, the, and, and, and what the result of that has been for us as evangelicals, ecumenism is a loaded word. Uh, it, it's a word that, that seems a little, uh, a little suspicious. And in fact, 
really, the, the fundamental difference between fundamentalists and evangelicals uh, is that we still would, even as we're, we're resistant to some of the ways that ecumenism has been abused, we still would, would uh, reject this second-degree separation. Right? So the fundamentalist view is don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Right? The second-degree separation, get, you know, come ye out from the world, be separate from it, make sure that you're not being polluted, and be really, really suspicious of any other church that isn't doing things exactly the way you would do it. And you may not, you probably don't want to get too close to them. You, you, maybe like you could visit one of them for a wedding or something, but you, you probably wouldn't want to join together with them and do like a VBS because you'd be really concerned about what they'd be teaching your kids. Right, so eh, we wouldn't do that. Whereas uh, the the evangelical movement, this was sort of the the big uh, mid twentieth century change, big shift on the part of people like Billy Graham, was to say, you know what, if if you're loving Jesus, and if you want people to be saved, and if you want them to live to His glory, then we can work together. So Billy Graham would have the local Methodist bishop up on stage. He'd, he'd have the local Catholic bishop on stage to pray if he'd be willing to come. And, and that was how you knew the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical. A fundamentalist thought that Billy Graham was, was the devil's most useful servant, and evangelicals kind of were jazzed about what he was accomplishing. Uh, but at the same time, because of all the baggage that's come, come with that word ecumenic, or ecumenism and the adjective ecumenical, um, it's still a little, a, a little bit uh, uh, unnerving for some of us as evangelicals. And so... Um, it's important as we encounter that word, uh, if we do, to be discerning about it. But, but uh, I do think that we need to recognize that what's going on here in 2 Corinthians, what Paul gives us, is not something that is supposed to undermine the unity of the body of Christ. It's not uh, something that's supposed to call us to hold our brothers and sisters at arm's length. Um, and, and that's important not only because we're dealing with the essential unity of the church, but it's important, too, because this has to do with the credibility of our witness. If you look in John chapter 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. One of those famous last words. John 17, Jesus prays, My prayer is not only for them, for my disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, for one thing, our unity, our, our relational unity as Christians is supposed to manifest the relational unity of the Trinity. Go home and think about that for a while. Huh? But why is this important? Jesus says, not just because it's true, but he says, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. And they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So the credibility of our witness to the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is directly tied to the way that we as Christians treat one another. 
it has to do with how we treat one another in our churches, and I think it has to do with how we treat those Christians that are in other churches and in other denominations. And that's why this is important, not just because of the yogurt. So, along with the faithful churches for nearly 2,000 years, we're going to stand up and we're going to recite the Nicene Creed. And then along with Jesus' followers to way, 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 way back when, we're going to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ because this is what we do as Christians. This is part of what it means for us, whether we're Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant, whether we baptize babies or don't, whether we take grape juice or wine for communion, whether it's important that the priest wear funny costumes or that the pastor not wear funny costumes, whether or not it's okay to wear a jersey in the pulpit, we all receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ together. So, will you please join me? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again, in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son he is worshipped and glorified, He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.